Hello. All right. Last session. Um, so again, thank you for coming back and welcome back. Uh, one thing I forgot to do is I, I encourage you, please, at the end of these sessions, to fill out your evaluation forms and submit those, because that really does help us to give you the best possible content and experiences at this conference. So last session today, um, so we, we got to talk a lot about the broadcast industry and OTT and playout and media supply chains. We're going to move into content production. And um, so it's really a really cool use case. Um, you may not have heard of Sundog Media, but you've probably seen Sundog Media. So I'm going to let uh, Con Wilms, who's one of our uh, principal or our uh, primary AWS solutions architects for media and entertainment, and Richard Welsh, who's the um, CEO of Sundog Media. They're going to talk you through some of the use cases for high production, high performance cinematic production in the cloud. Con? Thanks. So, yeah, my name is uh, Constantine Wilms. I'm a principal solution architect um, with AWS, and with me is uh, Richard Welsh. Um, and we're going to, we're sort of going to split this up today. Um, so we thought maybe we'd split it up as like maybe 60-40 or, or something to that effect. But uh, at least we're going to look at, uh, from the AWS perspective, um, production or post-production, if you will. And I'll get a little bit into that uh, as to why we focus specifically on that. Um, but I, I'm curious to know how many of you are in the post or post-production business or uh, involved with editing in the cloud. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so at least to get started, we'll, we'll take a, a macro perspective look at this, so more of like a higher overarching, and then uh, go to the building blocks. Um, so really what we're trying to do here, um, at least from this perspective, is look at um, how could we optimize for performance uh, with different building blocks that we have on AWS for post-production pipelines, per se. Um, and then I'll hand it over to uh, Rich, who will uh, talk about uh, the Sundog Media Toolkit, uh, some of the things they've been building. I, I think the important thing to realize is that this is a REL system in production. Um, it's been in production for a while, um, and they're processing a lot of content through it. Um, so that's interesting as well. So, you know, if we look at cinematic uh, production or, uh, you know, cinematic production in the cloud, um, it could, you know, something like this could take up an entire uh, conference just by itself. And if we looked at development tools, pre-production, storyboarding, etc. Um, so we thought that we'd focus on the post-production piece, and that fits in well with, uh, you know, what Sundog does too, um, and not so much on the other components. Um, you know, and of course, one of the first things to ask yourself is uh, why utilize AWS for post-production. Um, and these are most of the, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with these, most of the core tenants for using, say, the public cloud uh, or using AWS uh, for these types of workloads. Um, but really, when it comes to post-production to process content, um, one of the things that's important is to process content at velocity um, and then also different types of content. So you might, may have more uh, valuable content that needs to get processed at a faster velocity um, than other content that, you know, maybe it's non-cinema, maybe it's for television release, et cetera, where there's a longer lead time to actually finish or master or process that content. Um, so some of these are more applicable than others. So uh, increased speed and agility and 
not having to guess capacity are probably the two core ones there from a post-production perspective. Um, and you, you've probably seen this as well. So, uh, you know, Usman and, and Michael and, uh, you know, uh, the media supply chain uh, talk and et cetera. Um, the important thing here is that, you know, across all of these, these uh, eight workloads, um, there's obviously a slot in for uh, post-production here too, usually to the bottom, you know, left there in terms of visual effects, editing, a little bit into archive and supply chain for automation, et cetera. Um, and then acquisition takes a slightly different form in terms of ingest uh, and then final delivery, which is typically not play out, uh, but delivery of, say, uh, plates or delivery of frames, et cetera, to third parties. Um, and then the other thing to look at here is, you know, as, as companies uh, uh, at least play into more of these fields, um, eventually you start to bring everything into the cloud as well. So it changes the paradigm. So, for example, utilizing object store and not having to worry about capacity uh, versus co constrained capacity on-prem for doing post. And these are a lot the same as uh, supply chain, et cetera, in terms of decoupling your workloads, um, looking at microservices, um, but also looking at things like composable services. So, for example, how would we build a... Uh, you know, how would we build a production pipeline? Uh, we would build our own APIs. Is this something we need to stamp out multiple times? <laughs> um, and then obviously performance optimization as well. So when I was talking about, uh, you know, the velocity of being able to process this content at scale for these very large frames, et cetera, that's important too. Um, so if we take a look at just from a, you know, taking that into account, uh, post-production components, we can typically categorizes in, into four areas. Uh, so we have some notion of a pipeline or license manager that dispatches our jobs, uh, that then do things like render, transcode, uh, perform metadata operation, color uh, correction, etc. cetera. Um, but that maps into a, a processing form, uh, which is pinned to storage and which is driven by, for example, edit stations. Um, and if we then take that versus those uh, previous eight uh, workloads in terms of expanding this, you know, then you get this effect where the more components we bring in, the more we can actually start reusing, um, say, those APIs uh, um, or the storage subsystems that we've already put time and effort into. So having said that, um, I just wanted to go through a simple pipeline, map it to uh, at least a, what a post-pipeline would look like from a very high uh, point of view, high-level point of view, um, and then map that into um, uh, at least AWS services um, and also partner offerings uh, for each one of these phases. Uh, and this is, this is uh, you could equate this to your typical post-production pipeline. So we have an ingest phase. Um, obviously, after ingesting, we're storing, uh, and that content needs to either be stored for processing uh, or delivery um, but that could be object store, block-based store, it could be EBS, et cetera. Um, there's an editing phase which may be programmatic. Um, it may also be manual. For example, we're using uh, you know, G2 instances running Nuke or Maya or whatever that may be. Um, and then also the processing phase, which is kicked off uh, either manually or programmatically through our editing phase uh, against the back-end storage that's been ingested. So 
If we look at the ingest side, there are a number of services that are pretty self-explanatory here, um, just in terms of landing the content or landing the source content that we're going to use for post uh, into AWS. Um, so there's some options we have, like S3 transfer acceleration. Uh, so say, for example, if we have um, a number of uh, post houses across the globe that need to submit content to us, we may utilize something like S3 TA uh, for them to upload that content into a centralized bucket. Um, alternatively, uh, if the model is one of, say, hybrid cloud, um, then we may have Direct Connect in place, uh, in which case we could have editors running uh, workstation on-prem uh, with connectivity to burst into cloud for doing the actual uh, post-processing, for example. And there are quite a few other uh, you know, options here. So Snowball for landing content. Um, that is, maybe we don't have the option to do S3TA. Uh, maybe we don't have the option to do Direct Connect. Uh, so typically, this is your, your model of dailies or landing that type of content into AWS. Um, and then CloudFront as well, which in this model is more for uh, delivery, if you will. Um, plus, there's Storage Gateway. We see Storage Gateway used a lot um, for on-prem editing, where you may need to do backups of on-prem resources, config files, uh, you know, mesh files, etc., that uh, don't actually reside in the cloud, uh, and you can utilize that as a as a as a way to uh, move that content or back that content up into AWS. Um, and then finally, Elemental in terms of um, conditioning or preconditioning content, uh, so maybe lowering the bitrate of content, but at a constant quality ratio. Uh, that's also an option there. And you can see there are obviously a number of partners that play in this space as well, such as uh, Aspera and Signian for UDP uh, high-speed upload. Um, plus, we have a number, number, uh, number of other options there, too. So if we look at the storage side, um, you know, here we're, we're looking at uh, is, are we moving everything all into the cloud? Do we need a hybrid post-production pipeline? Um, and really, that then maps to selection of ser services, uh, of which a lot of these are um, you know, the same as the, the, the previous side in, in terms of S3, et cetera. But you also have now options for EFS, Block Store, uh, Glacier Archival, et cetera. Um, so these are you know, common building blocks, uh, obviously uh, very pertinent to this. Um, and then Marketplace is the last... Uh, Last thing to talk about here, just in terms of spinning up, say, uh, SoftNAS as an NFS server uh, or Gluster or Luster um, as an option. Um, there's some hybrid uh, appliances as well, like a Veer. Uh, so your use case model there that is actually pretty popular is one where the editors edit uh, on-prem um, and then utilize a Veer to back it into S3. Uh, and then back it back into uh, EC2 instances to actually make use uh, of that data. So on the editing side, um, and I'll let you get into some detail about this, uh, but you know it's the same sort of breakdown. Uh, EFS is once once again uh, pertinent here, just enable uh, in terms of being able to attach uh, either uh, soft or hard or NFS or object based. Um, to whatever you we're utilizing to edit uh, content in the cloud. Um, and you can see there are obviously another, uh, a number of options here, like Teradici, uh, Bebop, et cetera, that provide, in some cases, full uh, collaborative platforms on top of AWS. 
And then last but not least, on the processing side, um, once again, the same type of mix of services of which you probably have noticed that EC2, uh, EFS, EBS, and S3 are, are pretty much the core uh, tenants, if you will, for uh, building any type of uh, post-production workload uh, on top of AWS. Um, but essentially, on the partner side, um, you know, now we're looking at scheduling such as Thinkbox. Um, we're looking at maybe proxy generation or rendering such as RenderMan. Um, and then we're looking at other uh, packaging or watermarking tools such as Civolution uh, or AutoDCP. So just to dive into each one of these, um, I've skipped the ingest side um, simply because we're focusing on the content that's already been landed uh, and the processing requirements around that. Uh, but I'll go through the storage, the edit side, um, and then also processing as well. So this slide is also, you know, this is fairly self-explanatory as well. Um, I'm sure you're all familiar with this. But on the, on the post side or the post-production side, this opens up a, uh, interesting avenue in that when I don't have to worry about capacity, I can now start building uh, new types of workloads to handle my post data. Um, since I don't have to worry about where I'm putting those files or how I'm locating them, etc., uh, or partitioning the data. Um, and then if we dive into each one of these, and you can see here that EFS is a little grayed out area under encryption there, and that's simply uh, just because it's not native um, but you're still able to encrypt your payload, so you could say symmetrically encrypt um, your content before you move it back and forth uh, onto EFS. Um, and then there are other options here, and you can sort of look at this from a, a hot to cold for post-production. Uh, so, for example, utilizing EBS to, to store content that's going to get processed. Um, now, depending on the instance size, you may also opt to use um, shared memory or RAM disk as well. Um, which gives you extra performance on top of, say, utilizing provisioned IOPS-based uh, EBS volumes. And then the other thing to note here is that, you know, depending on the tools that you're using, so uh, you may be utilizing uh, legacy-type tools or uh, pieces of software. Um, some of those obviously are going to need block uh, or they're going to need NFS-type access. Uh, or uh, capability, and that's where EFS and, and obviously EBS come into play there. So much like media supply chain, where we take uh, EFS, we land content onto it, um, and it becomes the hub with all the NFS-attached endpoints that are then parallel uh, or in series processing the content. Um, this is much the same type of paradigm uh, for post uh, in, in the sense. Uh, but if you can, then obviously S3, uh, you know, in terms of um, migrating fully to object store, uh, in many cases for posts will give you more, much more flexibility. So the asset life cycle here is a lot like uh, the asset life cycle for supply chain uh, or OTT or, uh, you know, any of these other types of media type delivery mechanisms. Uh, where we're talking about ingesting content such as MES files uh, or source content, um, storing the frequently accessed content in a certain tier, um, and then automatically aging it to, uh, say, long-term or deep archive. Um, and this is particularly important for uh, post because there's typically a lot of different, say, camera angles, uh, you know, shots, etc that need to be stored uh, sometimes in perpetuity until the feature length 
uh, is, is done or the cinematography, et cetera, is done, or even beyond that um, in cases remastering or uh, different cuts that need to be made from that. So this asset life cycle that you, know, you may associate with something like uh, mezzanine files, et cetera, um, is ex extremely relevant for uh, post-production here too. So I, I talked a little earlier on the access models and really what this diagram here is depicting is that um, for post-production you can look at this and this is AWS on the one side and, and then say on-prem or a hybrid type situation uh, on the right hand side. Um, but you can look at these different types of storage models um, as, as either tightly or loosely coupled from the post-production sense. Um, so one of the workflows here with the thicker arrows uh, is, is pretty much a, a, a more tightly coupled uh, workflow in that you have a VR appliances that are sitting on-prem, editors may be working against that. Um, the back-end storage for that is up to S3, and then there's a storage cache um, which can be utilized by EC2 instances for processing. Um, similarly, if you were to utilize, uh, say, Luster against EC2, um, you'd have the same type of topology as you would with, say, Navier. Um, but in this sense, we're not actually going back on-prem. We're simply using it as a, a read-through or write-back caching mechanism uh, against object store for non-object store uh, type application usage. Um, and then finally, we have this notion of loosely coupled, right? So uh, in this mode, we're actually moving content back and forth. Uh, so what isn't depicted here is there's uh, some process involved, and this may be part of the pipeline, um, that's actually moving the content off of S3 onto EFS and then kicking off an API uh, to actually run through the pipeline uh, for all the instances that are attached uh, to that EFS volume. So, for example, here we could be utilizing spot instances to do processing. Uh, and, of course, since this is hybrid, um, those spot instances that spin up uh, may have dependencies such as uh, you know, uh, processing algorithms uh, or meshes uh, or any source metadata that may actually reside uh, on-prem as well, on on-prem storage. So there's no real limitation that you have to move everything in, um, but as you can see from this, uh, you get a, quite a lot of benefits from having all of the content reside in, say, in a single content type lake, if you will. And then finally, just on the storage side, um, you know, if we look at what do we do after we've done production or after we've run through uh, actually creating the content, mastering, finishing, whatever that process may be, uh, we once again have a notion here of ingest. So this is where we then have our production archive that could go uh, down into Glacier. Plus, we can also then tie this into supply chain or delivery models. Uh, so, for example, in this model here, we're actually... Uh, part of the process is to then move that content to either secondary or tertiary type archival, um, or this could be uh, a destination uh, that may be another customer uh, or it may be a master account, uh, or we may be producing source material uh, for a larger post-production uh, workflow that resides on the right-hand side here. Um, and then once again, you know, if we compare these three options here, uh, really the one thing to look at is uh, the latency um, that we can afford. Um, so this gets back, obviously, to 
some of the applications that we may run uh, may have a requirement for NFS. They may only want to talk to block store. Um, they may not be object uh, native, at least. Um, but this gives us the option to migrate an entire post workload uh, or pipeline onto AWS um, and then come back and fix or change the pieces that we want uh, to make, say, everything object-based, if that was the direction that we were heading. So on the editing side, uh, this is, uh, you know, if we look at what are the options there, I, I talked about Bebop, Teradici. Um, this is their 4K client. They have a, uh, I believe they have a demo uh, in their booth as well uh, of that working. Um, but there are options here for such as workspaces, um, Bebop, uh, running on top of Teradici. And, and what you see here is um, uh, this is the G2, the new instance that we released with the GPU uh, workspace, um, running Nuke or, or uh, Premiere. Um, but the, the thing I wanted to point out here is that uh, there are two ways to do this. The one is that you can utilize uh, H.264-based compression um, in order to ship the bits to the client uh, to actually you know, use the UI and so forth. Uh, or you can utilize PC over IP or PCOIP. Um, and you get an advantage to utilizing uh, PCOIP um, because the heat map that you can see on the right-hand side, and I apologize, the text is a bit small, um, but H.264 shows you your compression artifacts on the top right. Um, and then you can see the gray artifacts, uh, which these are all text fields, uh, have not actually been compressed. So one of the key things for editors is obviously when they're working uh, in these UIs for you know, extended periods of time, six, eight hours at a stretch, um, often it's not really the content that they're looking at, but the quality of the text, the dialogues, et cetera, that they have to interact with. Um, so not having compression artifacts on that um, really helps, uh, you know, at least from the uh, eye or you know, visual perspective, if you will. So this is just uh, you know, showing a, a render utilizing GPU where uh, Blender is an example here. Uh, we're actually just utilizing uh, the K520 to render the scene uh, as a preview um, instead of doing it CPU-based. Um, but having said that, you can obviously switch between the two there. Um, and just getting back to the, you know, the, the, these cloud-based protocols, um, Obviously, these two modes are, one is you compress everything with H.264, um, and often that's using 420 type color space, so you're, use, you're losing clarity, um, you're, you're potentially using, uh, losing 60, 70% of that visual clarity there uh, by utilizing that way of compression, uh, or at least that mechanism of compression. Um, and this is important for, say, uh, 3D editing, such as Maya, et cetera, uh, where when you're dealing with meshes and vertices, uh, you don't want compression artifacts on the edges of those. Uh, so at least 444 uh, type compression uh, that PCRP uses is a, a much better, uh, at least, uh, option here, uh, at least for editors in post-production. And then just to finally get into the uh, processing side, now, these are the same consumption models that we might utilize for um, your regular type workloads on AWS. Um, but at least on the post side or post-production side, um, 
often off on demand is utilized, spot may be utilized as well. You may be utilizing GPU-based instances, um, and you may be utilizing reserved instances for things like cluster management, etc. And this really brings us to you know, how do you how do you select um, between these different instance types for post-production workloads? Um, and you can see there are a couple options here, right? So if we're doing checksums, uh, or if we're doing proxy generation, etc., or if we're extracting metadata, we may be utilizing small burstable instances like a T-series. Um, if we're doing rendering with GPU, obviously we'd be utilizing either a G or a P-series for that. Um, but there are other options here, and I'll get to this shortly as well, um, where you actually benefit from, say, utilizing uh, obviously as much RAM as you can to load things like textures uh, for processing. Um, or you may, may be utilizing um, you know, some of the C4 uh, type series instances with uh, high ca capacity um, 10 gig interfaces on them. Um, and this sort of brings us to two things uh, before I hand it over to Rich. Um, one option here is accelerated computing. So post-production, you know, a lot of these workflows, you can utilize GPU um, as a way to do compositing. Uh, or mastering or finishing. Um, and there are advantages to doing this, um, but at least if you look at um, GPU versus CPU rendering uh, with post, this is where you can see that um, it's sort of a trade-off between the two. So on the one side, um, if you schedule against, say, uh, a multi-GPU instance uh, with software that doesn't really support it, uh, you now have to be setting, you know, am I going to render, say, frame 1 to 25 on my first device, first GPU, and then frame 26 to 50 on the second device? Um, how do I schedule that? How do I, how do I map those across GPUs? Uh, it leads to increased uh, scheduler complexity, um, but there's also the advantage of doing that as well um, because it may be faster to render on GPU as well. Um, but the underlying thing here is that there are also dependencies for post. Um, so beyond just GPU acceleration, um, there are many things that are CPU bound as well, such as loading the actual file, um, parsing, say, the package, uh, if it's a Maya package uh, or a new package, etc. cetera, uh, loading the actual meshes, um, maybe doing tessellation, etc., or detessellation. That's all going to be... Uh, largely CPU bound with no GPU acceleration. And the same goes for a lot of things like compositing um, and then image export. Um, those will probably be CPU bound as well. So even though you can utilize GPU here, um, there are a lot of these uh, additional you know, areas, if you will, in terms of that entire workflow um, that are largely CPU bound. So with that, I will hand over to Rich. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm Rich Walsh. I'm one half of Sundog Media Toolkit. So we're, um, I was going to say we're a startup, but we've been going for three years, so I guess we're, I don't know what you'd call us, survivors or something. Um, we are uh, bootstrapped, uh, and uh, there, there are literally two of us doing this. We don't have any external coders or anything. Um, so that's just for any of you out there who are like, oh, I want to do something uh, on my own. You can do it for certain. Um, we've been working on feature film stuff for probably about two years of those three, so we, we stood up some of our services pretty early on 
um, and started getting into some real content. So all the stuff I'm going to talk about um, uh, this afternoon is stuff that is actually out there and is being used on, on real life content. Um, I am conscious that I'm the only thing now standing between you and the bar, all the copious amounts of bars out there. So I will attempt to keep this lively and quick. Um, so just to give you um, a sense of what we've got going on in Sundog, it's basically, um, it's a platform. It wasn't intended to be. Uh, we just got there a bit by accident. Um, we, we intended originally to make a, a playlist mastering tool. Um, Chris, who's my business partner, and I both come from a cinema background, and we'd been working on mastering content for the cinema for about 10 years. And uh, we felt there was a place in the market for a scalable mastering tool and we started building it and I think about two weeks in we got totally distracted by someone asking us to do something completely different um, and we like you know dogs chasing a car went after that so um, we built a workflow engine um, and that actually became the core of the platform that we now have um, the workflow engine um, essentially allows us to scale up pretty much any kind of process um, we were aiming this at Hollywood-based kind of content in the first place. So we made a conscious decision not to um, try and do storage. Essentially, we didn't want to have to handle our customers' data for any longer than necessary. We didn't really want to store it, was the point, because along with that comes a lot of responsibility for security and liability as well. So we built our platform to essentially allow you to connect to cloud storage um, pretty much wherever it is. So we have um, multiple protocols available in the platform which you just authenticate your storage to. So your storage could be on-prem, uh, it could be in a, um, uh, a community cloud, somewhere like Soho Nets cloud storage, um, or it could be in Amazon or another public cloud, and you can connect to wherever your data is um, and run the workflow which will then just pull that data in from wherever, um, and it will actually put it back into a different place if you want. So you can use it as a method of moving that data around, and we've seen that use case with things like visual effects workflows where someone needs to run some processes, but the visual effects guys are actually in another continent usually, um, so they're able to um, deliver that data straight to them with the latency of a few frames rather than having to go through a whole file transfer process after they've done the processing. So that's how we architected it and, and got, get a sense of that here where you can store your data in S3, you can have it locally um, and move it into S3 via a transfer server, um, or you can actually just store it locally in cloud object storage, um, which uh, has been used a little bit. Um, Post-production facilities not at the moment too keen on building object stores when they've already got these huge sands sitting there that they've got to kind of amortize. But I think that that might be something that we'll see a lot more of, and certainly the vendors for those types of fast post-production storage are now looking a lot at object storage um, for on-prem. So um, this is one of our uh, workflows in the UI. So everything we do is all based on a web user interface. Um, you can just log in from anywhere. Um, and the data processing obviously, uh, processing obviously is happening in the cloud, so you're not seeing the data flow to your machine, you're just seeing the UI. Um, we do have proxies for parts of the system that need things like timelines and so on. Um, 
you can see here um, uh, the, these hexagons that are sort of glued together with the arrows. Um, that's actually, there are, I don't know why, but there are hexagons everywhere in the cloud. You've probably noticed this in all cloud marketing, you have to have hexagons. Um, this was not something we realized until after we designed the UI. And then we like, oh, everyone's using hexagons. So it's a bit late now. We've, we've kind of rolled with it. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, wh what you basically do is choose a bunch of processes. We have a, a tool library, and you can probably see some of the logos down there. DVO's uh, Digital Vision, who make a lot of film um, restoration tools. We've got some Dolby tools in there. Um, we've got some tools from RealD. So it's become like a bit of a marketplace where you can just plug together these processes and just use them on demand rather than going out and buying hardware, which is what you typically would have had to do in the past for post-production. Um, so I'm going to just quickly talk about what happens within each one of those hexagons. Um, essentially, each tool is self-contained so that when you plug them together, they can intelligently pass the process on from one to another. Now, it's not completely foolproof. I like to say it's idiot-resistant rather than idiot-proof. Um, if you try and send an audio workflow into a visual workflow tool, it's obviously going to break. But generally speaking, you can pass something uh, you know, from one image process to the next or from one audio process to the next. And that's because the tools are each sort of self-contained. So they, they understand what they are, which is the identity. They also understand their dependencies. So do I need to process all these frames before I pass them on, or can I process some and then pass some of those frames onto the next tool. Um, the tool then reports back its process of what it's doing uh, for a progress bar, because people love to watch progress bars. Um, and it has a, then a data I.O. layer, which essentially handles getting that to, um, those image frames, for instance, from your storage, wherever that may be, and then obviously passing them on to either the next tool or out to the final destination. Um, metadata handling, so there's a lot of metadata, particularly with image, that you may or may not want to modify as part of the process. So we have a layer that effectively either passes that on or modifies it as necessary. Um, and then finally, the content handling, which essentially translates the image. Um, if it's an image process, for instance, it will translate the image format into whatever the core wants it to be. So if the processing core needs something like an OpenEXR high dynamic range format or um, a DPX um, film scan frame um, in, within the algorithm, then we'll translate it from whatever's coming in, be that a video file or some image frame, um, like a JPEG frame or something, into what the core wants. And then on the way out, we put it back into whatever format it was coming in. Um, there we go. Uh, security, uh, that's like a big deal for Hollywood. Um, you probably know that. If anyone, if anyone so I, I didn't see how many hands went up. How many of you guys work in post-production or in, like, with the Hollywood studios? Uh, there's a good few. So the hands that go up will know that you've got to be relatively conscious about security with those guys. So th uh, I just wanted to show some of the areas in which you will um, typically see encryption taking place, because this is something that actually, it's probably one of the biggest hurdles that you have to get over when you're talking about doing post-production in the cloud, 
people are just totally paranoid that their stuff's going to get stolen, which is fair enough. I mean, you know, no one wants to lose it, but um, essentially there's a lot of encryption going on. So um, if you're going to move from on-prem to uh, cloud storage, typically you're going to be you're probably going to want encrypted storage locally. And actually what's interesting is that as the studios have started to accept the use of cloud for um, production deliverables and dailies and so on, um, they've realized that you can encrypt data at rest in basically any storage system. So previously, if you'd got on-prem storage like a SAN or a NAS that had some production data on it, you weren't expected to encrypt that data. Um, and if you're working in real time on it, you probably can't have it encrypted. But once it's going into any kind of near-line storage, uh, and the studios are now expecting that to be encrypted, even if it's not cloud storage. Um, so you can, once you've got that encrypted data, you don't necessarily have to decrypt it before you send it. So you can actually send it through a, a secure transport stream. So you've now got double encryption, which makes it pretty strong, um, unlikely in the case of a man-in-the-middle attack that anyone could really um, break that encryption. Uh, you definitely have to encrypt it at rest once it's in the cloud. There's no doubt there. Um, it may be double encrypted again, depending on what kind of um, what kind of files they are. So cinema files are already encrypted. You then encrypt them at rest. So now you've got again double encrypted in the cloud storage. And the idea really, once you get to the processing stage, is to decrypt at the very latest possible moment. Um, and in some cases, you can really be just decrypting for a few clock cycles, doing a process, and then re-encrypting and putting that data back. So the idea really there is just have the least possible exposure of your data, given that you're dealing with some kind of you know, big Hollywood movie. You, you definitely want to... Uh, make sure it's safe as possible. It's not very responsive, this, is it? Okay, so this is how um, our scaling engine works. We, we do use um, the Amazon um, scaling tools, but we've also built our own scaling engine on top of that. Um, this is really because of, well, two things. One is that we need to understand the entire workflow and scale up and down with the, um, the compute instances we're using um, based on that workflow, and that requires um, some slightly more sophisticated analysis than just using a um, sort of simple scaling service. Um, but then also we need to make sure that we hold those machines alive um, in case we want to run another process. So we're effectively running something that's akin to our own version of spot instances within our VPC. So once we've got machines and they're alive, we'll keep them alive um, and then if they're not being utilized, we'll reutilize them for other processes. So you build a workflow. Um, that then goes into a machine we call the workflow manager, which basically analyzes the whole workflow using those tool dependencies and tool identities that I talked about before. It decides what it needs to do in terms of how that whole workflow is going to play out, um, how the processing is going to take place in each block. It then creates one worker, which will be um, a particular instance. So the process that I'm going to talk about in a minute, is, um, uh, which is called TrueImage, uh, uses the R3 8x large because we need a lot of RAM. Um, you can really, I mean, this is one of the beauties of working in the cloud and something that's actually quite hard to do in a facility is have really flexible types of 
um, machine where you could like have RAM intensive, CPU intensive, GPU machines, and just chop and change as you wish for different processes. And if you've got to go out and build a really big render farm, you've kind of hung your hat on how that render farm is architected. Um, whereas you can kind of build render farms that demand in the cloud and, and vary those um, sort of elements to balance it out. So we'll choose a worker um, type that best suits the workflow. Um, we create one, um, and then that worker knows how many more of itself it will need for the, um, for the workflow or for the amount of content it's about to process. So it will look at some scaling decisions about what the process is, um, can it work on multiple chunks at the same time, that kind of thing. It will look at the size of the image frames, what the bit depth, the resolution, um, what's the total frame count, that kind of thing. And then it basically spawns itself, so it creates lots of versions of itself, um, which incidentally you have to be a little bit careful of depending what kind of security tools you're running, because this looks like um, a kind of a botnet um, cloning itself, so your security tools could flag this as uh, effectively some sort of denial of service attack, um, except that they're massive machines, so I suppose it's like a not really a botnet, more like a Transformers ultra botnet or something. <laughs> Very scary. But yeah, you can get flagged um, by security tools, so you have to be aware that, of that kind of thing if you're going to do this kind of cloned worker situation. So the workers basically then just dole out, the, the primary worker doles out the jobs to the clones. The clones all report back in, and the workflow manager gives the user a nice progress bar that they can watch ticking away um, and, uh, you know, productively using their time. Um, so the beauty of doing it like this is actually that we can, um, if we have a problem with either not enough instance types or we have some instances dropping for some reason, we can just jump across to other availability zones. So we, we typically will, on a big process, run across three availability zones in the region, um, which is really good for resilience. If we lose a machine, typically um, the the, um, the user will have no idea that that's happened. Uh, that machine dropping will make the primary um, worker know that those frames are not going to come back from that machine, so it will then give that job to another machine or spin another instance up to go and do that work. So that's it's a really resilient way of doing things, um, and it's, it's one of the beauties um, definitely of just using general EC2 resource um, and CPU processing. Um, and then when it's done, if we don't need to keep those workers alive, and this is all automatic in the background, it will just it will keep them alive as long as it thinks it needs to. Once it's happy, it doesn't need any of those machines. It will flush them um, and then collapse them back down to zero. So again, very cost-effective, classic sort of scaling use case. Um, so what I want to talk about is a particular um, a particular use case that we have in a particular tool. So we have um, a tool called RealD, uh, sorry, that is made by RealD. So I, you've probably heard of RealD. Uh, they're the guys who make the 3D glasses that you've probably worn in the cinema when you've gone to see a movie. Um, they also have a lot of um, R&D in image processing, and they have a particular tool which is, um, it's got a, a, it's a sexy description, isn't it? A multi-mode analysis super pixel reconstruction tool. But essentially what this does is it looks at every single pixel. Um, it looks at all the pixels around that pixel. Um, it looks at the pixel through the color spectrum. 
Um, it looks at it across frames, so forwards and backwards in time. Um, it, if it's in 3D, it will actually look between the frames and try and identify that same pixel in the other um, 3D frame if it's there. Um, and it then uses um, about 21 different um, analysis tools to determine what it thinks the pixel should have looked like. And then it will move it slightly towards that value from wherever it is. Um, and then you run it all again. And you do it again and again. And it's pretty intensive. Um, it makes a very fine adjustment. So between one iteration and the next, you probably won't see much. But once you start running lots of iterations, and hopefully these screens are good enough to see it. So what you can see there is quite a lot of um, noise. That's in the blue channel of the camera. So there's sort of speckling in the background, which shouldn't really be there. Um, Actually, I don't know whether you're going to be able to see that. Hold on, I'm just going to walk out into the audience to make sure I'm not talking about something you can't actually see. There we go. Yeah, so basically what happens with the process, if I can go backwards, is we're taking that noise out of the blue channel uh, in this particular instance. Um, and what you'll see there is that it changes what you can do with the color grade. So. The colorist was not able to achieve that with the original shot without creating loads of red channel noise. Um, and so it was creating red speckles in the image when he tried to color grade it. But once we'd run the process on it, he could get that color out. Um, the other thing that you get with it, I'll move back onto the stage because it's weird standing here, um, is you can reconstruct image detail. So on the right hand side is the original image and then on the left is the image after it was processed. So it's actually brought texture detail and sharpness back to the image. And this is part of the super resolution uh, kind of process. It's commonly used actually in astronomy where they'll take lots of pictures of the same patch of sky over lots of nights and then they'll use um, computer analysis to then rebuild a, a much higher resolution image of that part of the sky. Um, it can be used for lazy VFX work. Um, I'm not saying VFX artists are lazy, by the way, but sometimes they might paint something in and it's a little bit of a slightly rough job. So what you see there in that circled area is something where the, um, there's been a, a bit of the image is missing and they've just kind of smeared it across. And then you can see after true image is run, um, it's basically cleaned that up, as well as getting rid of the noise and improving the detail in the face there. So you can see what that's doing. Um, and uh, I don't know if I have got time for this. So I'm going to show you a couple of other things to do with um, vector scopes because they're always exciting, aren't they? Especially when you really want to go and get a beer. Um, so this is um, a, a shot from The Hobbit. This process was used on The Hobbit. Um, it was not done in Sundog because The Hobbit predates Sundog by quite a long time. But in, it was, in terms of the actual process, it was, uh, they cut their teeth on this movie. So I thought I'd show this as a good example of what's going on. Um, if you take a source and then you um, blur it, if, if you normally, if you're trying to reduce noise in an image, you can actually just blur the image. And that is, um, is a good way to get rid of like speckly noise, but obviously it makes the whole image look soft. Um, but what you see happening on the vector scope there is that the, um, the, the waveform effectively is tightened up. So what that's um, showing you is there's more kind of coherence of color in the image. 
So it's actually sharpened up the color. Um, if you were a colorist, you, what you would be seeing there is that you've got a more coherent image. When it's fuzzy like that, you've kind of got lots of noise, which is effectively spreading out the color into a wider range, and the noise is the stuff you don't want. But you don't want to blur the image, so that's not, it's good for color, but it's not good for, for the picture quality. If you sharpen the image, what you end up doing is actually improve, uh, sorry, increasing that noise spread. So what you see on the vector scope there is that the, um, the color data is now spread even further out, so you've got less coherence in the color. That's not good from a creative point of view. And uh, you probably guessed that if you run this true image process, what you do is you get a tightening of the color coherence, but you also get um, better image detail. So this is why people are quite keen to use it. Um, it's mostly been used on high-end movies, but we have done, on, done this on some um, indie movies. So, uh, and again, this is kind of one of the benefits of the cloud. If you want to just use something once and then never touch it again, you're not having to go out and buy really expensive equipment. You can literally just run that process on a problem piece of material and effectively have access to something that otherwise would be the preserve of only really big budget movies or TV shows. Um, so one of the um, benefits of all that stuff I was showing on the um, vector scopes is that it actually improves compression efficiency. So those of you who um, are into compression um, will understand the terms PSNR and SSIM. So that's the signal to noise ratio, which is essentially the difference between the original image and the compressed image. Um, and the structural similarity, which is more like the human visual system perceived difference. So have I retained the structure of the image effectively? Um, normally, if you blur an image, then you get um, better PSNR um, because effectively you've got rid of the noise, so that's great. But then the, the structure of the image has gone away, so that's not good. Um, if you sharpen the image, you get um, high structural similarity because all the objects have now got nice sharp edges. Um, but you've got a poor PSNR, so you've got more noise. And again, if you run this true image process effectively, you end up coming out with a high PSNR and a high structural similarity. And that will allow you to have um, better compression, typically in the order of about 20 to 30%. Um, so this was a problem that was uh, that cropped up on um, Ang Lee's new movie, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. The reason being they shot this in a slightly different format to usual. Um, it was 120 frames per second, which uh, is to start with is a problem. And that uh, is a problem because the camera is now exposing um, effectively uh, 10 times faster, sorry, not 10 times, uh, five times faster than it would have been. So you've got one fifth the amount of light coming in. So the noise level goes up in the picture. Uh, it was in 3D, so they had two cameras running at 120, so there was 240 frames. Um, they did it in 4K, uh, real 4K, cinema 4K, not UHD, which is fake 4K. Uh, that's just a cinema thing. And uh, it was in high dynamic range, so 16-bit images. Um, the result of that is that the uncompressed data rate is 40 times what you would normally get on a movie shoot. So where a movie normally, the, the uncompressed data for a two-hour movie would be in the order of a few terabytes. Uh, in this case, it was into the hundreds of terabytes uh, because it was 4K and, and the high frame rate. So we were dealing with a lot of data. This is important because I think a lot of um, 
people's perception about doing post-production in the cloud is that you can't really work with uncompressed data in the cloud. It's not feasible. Um, I mean, how do you even get it there is usually people's concern. But actually, you can do that, um, and we did on this movie. So um, you've got two really um, kind of viable options, I would say. You either use direct connect and a high bandwidth connection, or you can snowball it. And snowball is actually a really cost-effective way of moving the data in. If you don't have to keep moving the data in and out um, piecemeal, then that's probably a better option to move a large amount of data in, very cost-effective. But otherwise, typically big post houses will have a 10 gigabit connection available. So something like Direct Connect is quite feasible for a post house to do these days. Um, and then you can work on uncompressed data. Um, just to show you what was going on with that, these are actually the same um, color curve applied to the image. And the one on the left is before the processing, and the one on the right is afterwards. Um, we sometimes say it's a bit like having frosted glass. You can actually see all the color noise there, which is the speckling. Um, and then once that noise has been taken out through the process, um, obviously you get the, you know, the, the clarity of the image back. It was actually the same color tone curve on those two images. So although the color looks different, it's not. It's just the amount of noise that's actually in front of the, effectively in front of the image. So that's what uh, we were doing on that movie. Um, so we had to run it a lot of times. So we ran 10 iterations of the process. Um, the reason I wanted to show that was that, um, as the sort of the final part of this. Um, it, it produces quite a lot of data points. So each pixel is referencing, as I mentioned before, all the pixels around it in space, through the color spectrum, and, and also through time and in 3D across the images. Um, the net result is that by the time you've run 10 iterations of the process, um, you've created 56.1 trillion data points per picture frame, uh, which is a lot. Um, so really, there is no way you can run this in local hardware. I mean, you could run it on your laptop, but you wouldn't get the movie back for like 2,000 years. So it's not, not really feasible to do it in any place other than the cloud. Um, we were running tens of thousands of CPU cores on this process, but that meant that we could do the job in a couple of days, um, which is perfectly adequate in a, you know, in a feature film post-production pipeline. Um, I think the interesting thing from my point of view is that this process was sitting in an R&D department. It, does, it has spectacular results, but there was no way to productize it. And now, because of what you can do in the cloud and because of the scale of um, Amazon's public cloud, essentially we can bring products like this to the market, and not just for big feature films, actually, just for any filmmaker. Um, there is obviously a cost involved in doing like a, a big thing like the 120 frames per second stuff. But for the average filmmaker, it's actually feasible and cost-effective to run processes like this on just normal content um, in a normal post-production budget. So uh, in conclusion, uh, the challenge is really the scaling to the, the 120 frame 3D 4K was the biggest challenge on this particular job. But again, this is something that once you've built that scaling engine, if you're in a big enough data center, you can do it. Um, so we've been really happy to be able to do this stuff in, um, in the uh, in the different AWS data centers we use. For this particular one, we were in Virginia. 
Um, but we have also run it in um, Oregon and Ireland, so we've moved it around the world for different films. Um, I think the other big challenge is breaking the traditional workflow, i.e., you know, traditional thinking. People aren't readily um, going to start breaking their feature film production workflow just to try some experimental process out. So you have to find people who are prepared to kind of take a punt on doing it. But we're finding more and more that's the case, that people want to use different tools like this, and they are becoming a lot more accepting of the cloud. Um, but that is with the caveat that you have to stay safe. So really thinking about security a lot is, you know, that's important. Um, especially when you get to that end of the kind of content spectrum. Um, we've had some good customer feedback. Uh, the post-production facilities themselves um, feel that it's changing how they're able to work because they're effectively able to access high-end processes without making that CapEx investment. So I think there's a big opportunity here for the industry as a whole to start um, deploying a lot of these processes in the cloud in a way that will allow more people to use them. I think there's just opportunity to get more usage out of, uh, of these processes and not have to stick with this kind of model of buying boxes that you then have to get your money back on over a few years. Um, and then the creatives, what's been quite nice for us is that if you're working in sort of film and, and television, at the end of the day, you're trying to keep the creatives happy. And we always talk about preserving artistic intent and, and delivering the vision of the director or you know, um, the creatives involved in the process. And, um, but rarely is the technology actually a, a sort of in the forefront of the creative's mind. In fact, it really ought to be invisible to them. But when you can actually deliver something new to the creatives that they actually they kind of they love and they want to use and that's really kind of uh, a gratifying thing for engineers um, because it makes it worthwhile essentially for us to do it so um, yeah we've we've had good feedback from directors that they actually feel it changed you know having access to these tools that they couldn't use before um, has changed the way they work um, with that I think we've got three minutes of extra drinking time that I can give back to the audience unless anyone has any questions Oh, I've got, there's a question. Are they supposed to have a mic? Questions? Yeah. Oh, there's mics. Uh, Hi. Uh, so you can answer no comment to this, but Indie Filmmaker has an hour and a half film they've shot, you know, using somewhat pro gear. They want to run it through True Image. Ballpark cost? Um, come and talk to me afterwards. No comment. It's, it's well, I mean, list, list price for a, a, what, yeah. a one and yeah. a half hour movie? Yeah. Probably about 15,000, but it's negotiable. Like. Any other questions? Pricing questions. That's, yeah. Those are normally awkward ones, but, you know, stuff. All right. Hey, thank right. you, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed the pre-day. Thank Thanks for coming. We'll see you in the rest of the show. All right.